the magazine. No, I get a few magazines here at the house, but the New Yorker is by far my favorite. And it's just one of those magazines that I don't even really care about the subject matter sometimes. It's just so well written and researched and edited that it's just a joy to read. And it's easy to read. I mean, as an editor, my number one role, and any of the contributors who have written for me over the years know this, clarity above all else. If you lose your reader on the second sentence and they take that off ramp and are gone, they're not coming back. That was Tom Bai giving us his favorite magazine and best tip if you want to get published in the Drake magazine. This is episode 162 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. If you get a chance, head over to wetflyswing.com Facebook and join our community to ask a question for an upcoming guest. Tom Bai, the editor of one of the most influential fly fishing magazines, is here to share his story. Tom and I jump into a range of topics, including how the idea of the Drake came to be during his days as a ski lifty, a little bit on sweet boats on the Middle Fork of the Salmon, uh, widespread panic, the group, and even a little on Don uh, Donald Trump Jr. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors. SoFly Gear, headed up by 17-year-old James Carlin, of the U.S. Youth Fly Fishing Team has a buttery, soft, quick-drying line that I have been loving. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash SoFly to support James and the podcast today. That's wetflyswing.com slash S-O-F-L-Y. We are also supported by the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has an exceptional fall edition out right now. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash FTJ to support Craig and the gang right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash FTJ. Uh, really excited to share this one today with you. So without further ado, here's Tom Bai from the Drake Magazine. How's it going, Tom? Great, Dave. How are you this morning? Good. Good. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to have you on here to uh, dig into a little bit of your background and some on the Drake uh, magazine. Uh, you know, obviously you've got one of the leading magazines and I know you've been out there a lot. Um, I've been listening to a couple of podcasts you were on to get a, a little bit more of your background. So I'm, I'm interested <laughs> to dig into it, but maybe start us off. I want to dig into the Drake. Um, you know, I know you've talked about, but, but talk, talk about how it came to be and kind of start from wherever you want to start. How did how did this all come to be? Because you've done a lot of stuff in your life. Uh, I have. That's what happens after when you start getting old. <laughs> I uh, I had the idea for a while before I started it. I would say, well, I spent one season um, after college. I was down in Arizona briefly, and then I moved up to Jackson. This was in the early 90s, and my first winter after a summer in Jackson was in Park City, Utah, where I was a lifty. And anybody who's ever been a lift up hmm. knows that that job gives you a lot of time to just think. Because <laughs> <laughs> you sit, at least when you're in the top and you don't have to load skiers onto a chair, you just sit in a little uh, box up there and think to yourself. So that was really where I started <laughs> jotting down a lot of ideas 
I've always been a writer and knew that I wanted to be a writer. Um, but there's a little bit of sad side to this story as of this weekend, but a huge influence for me was powder magazine. And that came to ski towns in the mid nineties. And it was just an event, you know, people just love getting that magazine. That was very influential over the weekend. The parent company that owns powder bike, snowboarder, skateboarder, uh, feast wow. business, or at least put it on pause. Um, not that they weren't actually doing well and fairly profitable, but the huh. company that owns, owns, uh, uh, men's journal and used to own a bunch of tabloids and got itself into some debt issues, I believe. But so who knows all the background of it, but, but it was almost next year would have been a powder's 50th Jeez. anniversary. I, I spent three years as editor of that magazine and it just, it really influenced the Drake a lot. But in terms of the first seeding of ideas was really a lot of lift op time there. And what would have been, I guess, 93, 94, that winter in park city. And then, um, Four years later, started it in Jackson. That's it. Gosh, and and, <laughs> and I I know I've I've heard and I know a lot of the background there the the skiing and you were a skier right or or were you snowboarding did did you do both Yeah, I was a bad skier, which is amazing because I eventually became editor of Powder, but I just I was never really very good at skiing. No <laughs> so, kidding. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't know I didn't grow up. I mean, I went to Mount Hood and yeah. skied a few times in high school, but super flaily, you know, and that's not good snow to learn how to ski in anyway. It's almost East Coasty as far as the water content and that sort of thing. Yeah. But uh if you want to learn to ski, just like any other activity, you move to a ski town. And I did it in Jackson and in Park City. And by the time I left Jackson in the late nineties, I still felt like I was not a very good skier because I lived and skied in Jackson, but of course, if I went with my friends who were Flatlanders, I mean, they thought I was good. But <laughs> compared to that bar yeah. in Jackson Hole, <laughs> um, but I but what I was good at is ski towns. I just really got that culture one from having lived in them, of course, but also I was a newspaper reporter and Jackson covered sports, and and I just I feel like I really got what that. But being a ski bum in the 90s was all about, and that helped me in my career more so than my skiing ability, that's for sure. That's right. That's right. And it, it's interesting, and this, this has come up a number of times talking to people that have, you know, are, are leaders in the fly fishing industry, but there, there's a, a good background in snowboarding. And I talked, I think it was Marty Sherman, he was talking about how, you know, they were snowboard. you know, they were bums up on the mountain too. And the, his boss, right. right. His boss owned, uh, you know, part of the lodge up on Mount Hood or whatever, but basically he fished on the side and that's how it all came to be. And I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, the snowboarding and the powder and all that stuff, is it, when you look at the, your magazine with the Drake, is it pretty much, how similar is it to the style of what they were doing when they were still going? Very similar. And I think I've made this analogy before, but as far as fly fishing goes, the act of casting a fly rod, maybe a spay rod in particular, is similar to telemark skiing to me. And if, if skiing, regular alpine skiing is spin fishing or, you know, yeah. then I would that and you and you want to make it just one step harder, 
then that's kind of what telemark skiing was. And that became big in in the 90s in these ski towns. It's kind of faded mm-hmm. a lot now, in part because they've made the boots a lot lighter that you can use for either or. And, oh, and right. it was, but it was just that the feel of a telemark turn when you do it right is similar to a great spay cast. You know, even if you don't catch a fish, there's a lot of value and you get joy out of just making a good cast and working your way down the river. And I, and I, I felt like telemark skiing just got you further down in the snow and there's just some, there's a feel about the, the turn and snowboarding was really a lot like that too. I didn't do a lot of snowboarding. I did it when I had skier friends who came to town who really didn't ski because I was not good at snowboarding. So I could, all right. Keep I, up I wasn't waiting for them then. Yeah. <laughs> we were kind of about the same. Um, but yeah, I think as far as the, the culture goes, you're exactly right. I, I heard Marty, mentioned that i think in in your podcast and you have these so many of these ski towns are trout towns right that's true ski patrolmen are oftentimes guides in the summer the ski instructors oftentimes guides in the summer and it's just a great way to if you were in a town that had both it was a it was you know it gave you a decent off season each year and then um you know and the patrolmen are the coolest guys in town that's you it. know that's always or women now a lot more of them now but you have both and it was a it was uh it was a great way to to earn a living in a, in a ski town yeah yeah and it's just uh and just outdoors right i mean you you've been right. um you know outdoor writers and i mean obviously that's not a easy thing to do and you've you've managed to make the drake a full-time gig now which is also amazing i mean can you take us to that point where, because I know there is a long history there where you were with Powder and you were, you know, and you have a journalist, uh, you know, a background in journalism. Um, but eventually the Drake became your full-time gig. Can you take us to that moment and tell us like how that all felt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could take you to that moment. Uh, it was fall of 2008. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So um, not the best time to try to be growing oh, right. anything. Um, so my timing was in some ways you couldn't imagine it being worse, but I left powder. So I had been in the ski industry. I had two years at skiing and three years at powder. And I was just doing the Drake once a year in the off season from the ski publishing. So basically every spring I put out an issue. So I left powder in spring of 2007 and did do a second issue that year and then the next year the wheels fell off the economy and i was out there talking to advertisers about taking drake to three times a year which i did in 2009 and 2010 and looking back on it it's just it seems ridiculously dumb <laughs> but i had nothing to lose really i mean i didn't have any money at the time mm-hmm. really and and the drake offered something that the other magazines at that time didn't offer. Part of it was just affordability because it was still fairly small. Um, and it was just different. And, but I was, I still was doing some more freelancing on the side and this and that. And I was living in Fort Collins. I I lived uh, cheaply. I wasn't bumming, Mm -hmm. but I, I didn't have a lot of 
expenses or anything like that. But that 2009, I, it was twice a year. And then I took it to three times a year that next year, um, 2010 and 2011, I went to four times a year. So Mm. 2007, 2008, it was two each year. And then 2009, 2010, it was three and 2011 on it's been my full-time job. That's cool. So 11 years now. Yeah. 11 years. Yeah. And, and I want to jump into, uh, I want to jump into a little bit on the, on more on the Drake. And I know some people definitely, you know, we could dig into a little bit more of what it's all about, but I, I just want to hit on one thing I think is really interesting in your, your background and, um, you know, probably shed some light on the person you are. Um, but, um, you know, you had like a little stint in the army, right back. I think it was I a, did. a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, because when I think of the art, it's interesting because I know a little bit of your story. And for some reason, Johnny Cash always pops in my head. Totally different story. But <laughs> I mean, the guy, right? I mean, different time. But, you know, he always had this dream of, I think the music was there. And he went to the army for a short time. Right. And I think he wrote Folsom Prison Blues. It comes out. And he, right. And that's it. Now he's becoming, and that his, that's his dream. Did you, I mean, wh- why did you go in the army? And then what did it do for you? I went in the army to get money for college, to be mm. honest. I mean, that, it, it was, uh, and Oregon isn't a big military no, state at all. Um, and my father fought in Korea and, and so he was in the war, but there wasn't any sort of military, like there was no pressure on me. I didn't have a bunch of friends or relatives. I really didn't know anybody at the time mm-hmm. that I'd been in. Um, there was no but, war. There was no war going on, right? No, no, it was, uh, there was some, you know, there was, there was still terrorism taking place over in Europe and things like that. But overall, compared to the years since it was peacetime service, you know, and, uh, but it was at that time, the army had a two year enlistment. I mean, it's, it's always a six year commitment, but it was two years active, which they've had off and on over the years. I'm not sure whether they've still have it. But mm-hmm. at the time I'm 18 years old, two years seems like a long time, but honestly, I don't know that I was also ready to go to college. <laughs> I mean, I was, a, I was a good student. I wasn't a great student in high school, but my sister was going to college at the time and she was going to a private school that was pretty expensive. And, uh, and it, it would have been tough financially. I don't know that my, my folks, could have done it or whatever. Yeah. And, and so, uh, and it was probably one of the smartest things I've ever done. I mean, I absolutely, had I gone to college right after high school, I think there's a fairly decent chance I would have gone for a year or two and then gone up for a summer of fishing yep. in Alaska and never gone back or something maybe. Yep. Um, but it was, uh, two years in the army. It was also two years. I got to live in Europe and I was based in Germany and uh, I fired a missile, shoulder-fired missile system, <laughs> and it was kind of a uh, a really cool experience in that regard in terms of just having been in the service and exposed me to other people from across the U.S. that I never would have otherwise been in contact with, much less lived with and worked <laughs> with on a daily basis. And you're talking about... Forty percent to fifty percent, you know, non-white, right. which was really good for me because Oregon is very white, and it was it was, 
you know, and, you, and you're not just going to work with them and you're living forward to a dorm and you're spending weeks out in the field. And so it, it was just a really, really great experience. And then I got out and had money for, for Oregon state. Oh, so right. that was the main reason I went into the army, but it ended up getting me all kinds of things beyond that. That's it. That's it. And then, then you went into journalism at OSU and then, and then you kind of slowly connect to, um, yeah, and you moved eventually. What, what was the remind me again on the magazines? What was the first uh, you moved to Jackson? Is that what happened? Yeah. So the the magazine was in '98, but I was in Jackson six years before I started the magazine. That was uh, I worked uh, started up there in the fall of, I mean uh, May of 1992, and I was a rafting guide for uh, three or four of those early years. And still kept doing it before I became a fishing guide. I would split up my summer up there and, you know, raft guide until whatever, end of June or early July. And then uh, in spring of 98, I had been assembling the Drake for a year, but I was working for the newspaper and they agreed to print this thing for me. And it was a super small print run of 5,000. And to be honest, Dave, I don't know if I even really thought I would do a second one. Hmm. I had no idea about distribution or <laughs> I had no business plan. I didn't have a bunch of money. And so, um, but I did do a second one. I was also in Jackson. Uh, didn't really have the money to do it. So I had to sell some things to make that happen. And then I got a job at Paddler Magazine and Steamboat and they helped me publish it for a couple of years. Just kind of a weird, I basically told them they could keep the money if they wanted to add that. So it was a seventh issue of Paddler magazine. Oh, wow. Uh, in 2002, let's see, no, 2001, 2000, I did not do an issue cause broke. And then 2001 and 2002 was a, uh, it was a seventh issue of the, paddler magazine which was actually which was the drake it was just a fishing magazine that paddler did and then, and they got the ad revenue and they maybe got you know five or ten thousand dollars or something out of it but but i have told the story once before at least but i think the interesting thing about that is what paddler magazine what that got me other than just a, my first real job at a magazine not an excellent boss another school cool ski town but what it got the drake was on the shelves of Barnes and Noble, oh, which wow. I never would have been able to do as a annual publication, right? I, I yeah. you have no muscle, no whatever. But they they put it out there as this, you know, seventh issue of Paddler, and then there they had data on the yeah. sale, and it sold pretty well. Wow. And so I was able when I left there, they kept carrying the magazine, and I would not have had. A chance to do that. I mean, my boss and editor up there, Eugene Buchanan, he's still in Steamboat. It's a really, really good dude. And if, I mean, if if it wasn't for that, I mean, you just look at all these little things along the way. I've, hmm. I, I've always had faith and confidence in my writing, but beyond that, as far as I mean, I have a lot of determination and all that. But I don't have a lot of business skills and never really did. And so you, I definitely got a lot of breaks along the way just 
lucky breaks and you yeah. get your name from the right people and just certain things happen. You look back on, you're like, that was huge. That's and it was nice. like happenstance, you know? That's cool. That's cool. What would be, I mean, if, if there are a lot of these things, you know, that came to make the Drake, I mean, if the Drake didn't come to be, what, what do you think you'd be doing right now? Um, that's a good question. I think I would certainly be writing, but yeah. I would probably be freelancing and have another job. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I could have been successful in a number of probably, you know, real estate and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably, I maybe would have ended up like corporate communications guy or something. Right. I mean, as, as, as much as that makes my stomach turn at this point, yep. I, but I did, I was in at Oregon state. I had a couple of good internships still while still in school. I was at Portland general electric in Portland. I don't know if you remember, but they had the, it was world trade center downtown. They were, they oh, were yeah. in that building. I had that one summer and then TriMet the next summer. So two really good internships that showed me on the one hand, a very private, stockholder held company and then another very public Hmm. company and then i worked basically volunteered maybe got five bucks an hour or something right after oregon state i went down to arizona and worked for a couple pr firms so i did a pretty good job of like checking off the okay i know what i don't want to do you know i was a mortgage loan officer Hmm. for four months in Arizona before I went to Jackson. Wow. <laughs> and that was the, the biggest, easiest one to check off. But just like anything else in your life, I learned a lot about borrowing money for a home and, and just that short amount of time. But I, I don't know. I, I probably would have been in some corporate facility or, you know, job and, and yeah. been not, not happy. And not happy, <laughs> which, which a lot of people do. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people that are, they're doing that. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, in fairness, at that, if it wouldn't have happened for me when it happened, I I may have just continued. Maybe I would have bought a small rafting company, or I don't know. You know, yeah. s- s- something that kept me outdoors that I really don't know that I could have stayed indoors doing that sort of thing. But that's um, awesome. That's <laughs> but I'm happy that I'm doing what I'm doing. Totally. I, I, I still love it as much as I ever did. Yeah. Well, what's the, what's the long term? I mean, I guess you're, you know, like you're saying, or you're in your mid fifties or getting close to that. Yeah. What's the long term? You know, I look at, it's been a long, you know, a good ride. How does the next, um, you know, 10 years look like when you, when you look out at the, at the magazine, kind of more of the same or how do you go forward? I don't think I can just do more of the same because the nature of, of print and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, in some ways, it's it's making a little comeback, just because people are so untrusting of yeah social media and you know. And I think we've seen we've all seen some magazines have gone away, and your alternative is is Logging. clickbait online. Yeah. You know, it, it's just the the online reading experience is still for the most part horrid, yeah. unless it is. New York or New York Times, something that can afford to not have the clickbait crap on the mm-hmm. bottom, but almost all of it does, and it's just just a horrendous reading experience. And and most people, um, there's just a lot of people that have kind of come back to looking, having a different 
look at print, but I do think it's got to be a little different model business-wise. And mine, the Drake actually has been for quite a while in terms of getting quite a bit more of my income from newsstand sales and single copy sales and subscription than uh, advertising. advertising. Like percentage-wise, it's certainly more advertising, but it's not 95% advertising, yeah. which is most big magazines are, and they give away their subscriptions for airline miles or whatever. Oh, wow. And then that, that comes back to bite you, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, when you, you lose a few advertisers, and suddenly you're out of business because you rely so heavily on that. But I've I've never really discounted the magazine and still see a healthy sell-through mm-hmm. on newsstands and things like that. And I can't honestly say that that's by design necessarily, but I did see the problems with, I mean, I worked for two of the biggest media companies on earth at the time it was time inc at skiing magazine and that was it was they owned everything i mean (laughs) just hundreds of titles right uh it was aol time warner that was the parent company um and then uh prime media out of powder always new york based always tons of titles and you just saw some of the problems with being too reliant on ad revenue that's, Even though I'm very fortunate to have good, yeah, you do support in the industry. You, you do. Know, it's great. Yeah, I was I was just thumbing through the the summer edition, and yeah, you've got pretty much all of the big uh, biggest companies, the biggest and best companies, right? Uh, that are and a lot of them have been there for 15 years. Exactly. You know? Yeah, but that's uh, I don't I don't shortchange the editorial. I mean that that's still what it comes down to, and. I do think that maybe, and this could all change tomorrow, right? Who knows what yeah. the hell, especially this year, what's going on. But I I think that we're all learning quite a bit, we all meaning like in this publishing world of that there is a fine, there is a sweet spot size-wise and niche-wise. Like in addition to powder, bike, snowboarder skateboarder going away last friday i think if you had any one of those individual titles yourself yeah you could make it you could make it profitable you'd be okay i I don't think any of those titles were actually losing money i just think the parent company was looking for an excuse to get i mean the uh powder was roughly the same size as the drake a little bigger but just hardcore dedicated readers and who who really appreciated the print version but those are niche titles. Also, over the weekend, it was announced that Field and Stream and Sports of Field were no longer being printed. Whoa! I don't. You heard that? No, but I didn't. that was that Jeez. that uh, the title. They were bought by some company that was going to do some sort of, you know, digital assets or some sort of crap. But I, I have to admit, as much as I read those titles when I was a mm-hmm. young kid as well, that doesn't surprise me. Because those really aren't vertical titles. And it seemed like the past couple decades, so they'd been almost all about, you know, survivalist gun and maybe some bass fishing. So, Field and Stream, you you mentioned uh, vertical titles. What what do you mean by that? 
Oh, I'm sorry. I just mean like a vertical title, meaning just fly fishing, just skiing, just snowboarding. Now, uh, those, those, uh, the, the field and stream and, and sports of field and outdoor life, those are horizontal titles. They cover hunting, fishing, not as horizontal as say outside magazine. Yeah, outside, right. But that, I just think that you need to be right now much more niche than those magazines in order to really hit that passionate group. Yeah. But I, I um huh. I know we had Zach on from Swing the Fly. Yeah. Maybe there's a two niche. A two niche. Uh, we had that it's conversation. Just, you know, I mean so yeah and, and maybe maybe the, the the Drake is just lucky to have fallen into that kind of perfect size niche. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I work really hard to make the editorial strong and it's been my background and I've done it my whole life and I take it really seriously. And I know that that's a huge part of it, but all that could be great. And if there's no place to distribute the magazine or it, it, it turns too many people off, then, yeah, then you're, it's still not going to make it right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but, uh, I, I, I think, I just feel fortunate the fly fishing industry is also much more friendly to hmm. retail sales of fly fishing. I don't know if the, I think that this summer people realize how lucky we are in this pandemic. I mean, who knew how this was all going to unfold, yeah. <laughs> but, but for all the struggles that everybody, other than, of course, the travel booking agencies, you know, the, the especially the international ones and the, the Yellow Dogs and Frontiers and ones like that, obviously very much struggled. But beyond that, almost every manufacturer I've spoken to in fly shop, they had record months from June to now. And you That's see right. it on the river. I mean, they're, they're, they're everywhere. But I, I do think some of that is just the strength of the retail fly shops. I mean, people, you almost have to go into a fly shop for something. Flies, tippet, floating information, mm -hmm. and you don't have to go into the, the pro ski shop. Oh, no. Once a year to get your skis tuned. Yeah. You know, there's, there's just so much more of a community in a fly shop than there is yeah. almost any other you know, specialist. Is that and, because, and is that because it's harder? I think a paddler too, like paddling. I, I've had some friends that were, you know, kayakers and I mean, is fly sure. fishing, a, a, you just need more help with fly fishing? Well, part of the problem with whitewater kayaking is that everyone in the sport is one wet exit away from quitting it forever. Oh, it's really? just scary. <laughs> oh, like the I time mean, you, you, you almost die and then you're, you're done. Yes. Yeah, it's just far more dangerous than the fly fishing is. And I'm talking about just whitewater kayaking at, you know, high end, like above yeah. three plus, four plus. Did you do that? Um, uh, I did. I I was at Paddler Magazine for a couple of years, and mo most of my background was rafting. But I got into it, but kind of like my skiing, I never got beyond a three plus yep. boater with confidence. And I ran a couple class five 
rivers with people who are way better than me. Mm. And I didn't even enjoy it. I was so scared. No, I just didn't, I wasn't confident enough in my no. abilities. <laughs> um, but that it, you bring up a great example because whitewater kayaking is a sport you can look to that was booming in the early two thousands. I mean, it, it was on every commercial tail Berman paddling off a waterfall huh. and, and the magazines went away. Wow. The videos went away and the sport went away. I mean, it, it was certainly in part because stand up paddleboarding was coming on and you have sit on top kayaks that, you know, hmm. every overweight dude in the country can go out and sit on and put a six pack on and convince his wife to <laughs> exercise or whatever. Yeah. But it, it, they were really, really popular. But whitewater kayaking, it also had the problem of, at its peak, you were a whitewater technical whitewater boat was a thousand dollars, twelve hundred bucks, and then you had some engineers come along and enter the sport and say, "Well, I know I'm sitting in eighty dollars worth of plastic here, so I'm just going to manufacture these and sell them at Sam's Club for two hundred or whatever." And there was a lot of reasons, but I mean, you, I think fly fishing is to your point. Yes, they may have to go in there and ask information. And yes, it is. Uh, it can be challenging to learn on some levels, and you can get overwhelmed with the. But you're not going to go out and die. No, it's not. Sure. <laughs> it's not scary like extreme skiing or extreme yeah. kayaking is. And you can and you can. Yep. Start it at my age. Although I will say, I if you do it enough, Tom, you know, I've I've definitely been in a couple places trying to get to fishing spots where I. Oh, I, li yeah. I literally yeah. have almost died. You know what I mean? But that's more extreme. Sure, sure. I think what you get But you didn't there. have to go down. No. It's not, you're not in a kayak and the only way out is downstream. That's true. <laughs> and climb around. That's true. And yeah, through so, killer. Yeah. But I mean, that's part of what I love about kayaking too. But just uh, fly fishing. Sure. I've, I've probably come closer to dying in fly fishing than I ever did. Skiing, kayaking, just putting yourself in those kind of questionable waiting situations and, exactly. and whatnot but that was you know my kind of dumb decision making that's, that's cool no i love that i love that conversation just with the niches and you know talking about the the drake and the bigger conglomerations because there's a lot of that going on and i mean the drake so you guys still are i mean you're just a single and it's funny because i think back of you know i had elliot adler on way back quite a while oh, ago yeah. yeah i had I elliot that. on and <clears throat> i think it was uh you know, he was a podcaster. I try to, where I can, interview other fellow fly fishing podcasts just to, you know, right. I mean, connect. And and it was great because we talked about you and we talked about the bag. At one point in that, in that uh, interview, I said, we were talking about the same thing, about the Drake growing and getting bigger. And I said something to like, well, is there any uh, worry that the Drake's ever going to become like corporate big? And he was like... He stopped me right away. He's like, I do not think the Drake is ever, you know, it's basically Tom and there's a couple other people. I mean, so you guys are a small sh a shop, right? Yes. I mean, as small as you can get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had various other uh, uh, contributors. Jeff Mueller was a managing editor for a time. Um, Don Weaver has for seven plus years, coming up on eight, been the person that runs the show behind in terms of the circulation and 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 ad traffic flow and all these sorts of things uh, and i've always 
farmed out the website and the design mm-hmm. is uh, subcontracted. Yep. So the number of full-time employees I've had has never been more than two. You know, and I'll bring in someone like Elliot. Actually, that's giving me more credit. Elliot brought himself in and told me that he was going to do this podcast, which I really was not. I don't know if he told me the story, but, you know. No, it's I hard. wasn't much podcast person yeah and he just he had done two or three of them before i even listened to the thing and i'm like oh my god this is so good yeah you know he, he was very he took it to a different level in terms of the type production you know it was totally different than what you do or what a lot of people in terms of going out and talking to all kinds of different people and splicing it together and and putting it was more like an npr sort of thing it, that's exactly what it was i mean he comes and the reason he has that is that i mean part of it is that his brother uh, produces one of, or he's connected with one of the other big podcasts. I can't remember the name of it now, but, um, but yeah, he comes right. from a production family and he knows. Um, and the thing about that is, is I asked him in there, I asked him, so, so what do you do with the Drake? How long does it take you? And I think he said it took him 30 to 40 hours a week to produce the episode, you know, like, it, you know, compared to this, which takes me probably five hours, you know, to do, um, the interview style right. just makes it a little easier to, to do it. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think that, that, um, he, he struggled with even finding a little sound system or place, a place where he could go and, and make it sound good enough. Cause yeah. the office I had at the time was right next to the road yeah. <laughs> like that. But yes, he, he was, uh, very, very talented and had a different standard for himself as far as how to go about the the process of it and uh people ask me what happened to adler and i'm like well what always happens when you hire a talented person he gets hired away by yep. somebody that's actually paying him real money to be a <laughs> podcast you know so yep. he uh that's what he's doing now but <laughs> yeah 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 that's cool no i think it's uh i remember when he, he he was finishing up and um you know wrapping things up with you well i guess he's still kind of a technically assistant editor right he's on on there or he's, yeah he's still he, 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 can he come still back. helps. He can do all of it. Like he's a good editor. He's a good writer. Huh. He, I mean, the, the podcast thing is his love, and he's making good money now. But of course, um, it's you know corporate. I mean, some of yeah. our commercials, right? You know, yeah. but um, but yeah, he he uh, uh, he, he still does. He's he looks over feature edit, you know, feature stories for me and smaller, smaller news pieces. And that's a whole different skill, whether you're writing or editing. I mean, someone that can put together 600 words can't necessarily put together 3000 and vice versa. I have good writers that just cannot, write anything less than 2000 words for some reason, you know, yeah. or 3000. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's cool to see his broad range of talent. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Here you go. FTJ angler has a great fall edition. That's out right now. You can find Lucas Stevens who visits Winston fly rods in the uh, fall edition for an insider look at, and a rare interview with writer, Ted Leeson someone I hope to have on the podcast soon. Patrick Wall pays homage to Harry Lemire's tied in hand Atlantic salmon flies displayed in the Marguerite Salmon Museum. Boots Allen 
takes us to the pond with a masterclass in Stillwater. Dennis Dobble travels to Scotland in search of Atlantic salmon. Plus, FTJ Deputy Editor Henry Hughes with a mysterious fly fishing story and Nora Etsy with her poem, No Business. I would love it if you can press pause right now. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash FTJ to subscribe so you get the next edition right to your mailbox. That's wetflyswing.com slash FTJ. SoFlyGear.com, led by Chief Apparel Guru and U.S. Youth Fly Fishing All-Star, James Carlin has a clothing line you're going to love. SoFly's mission to produce clothes that look good, perform well, can be worn on and off the water, and most importantly, are manufactured under rigorously sustainable methods. How do they do it? Bamboo, in a single word, a fabric that is buttery soft to the touch, durable, sun-resistant, and embossed with original designs and artwork. I've been wearing the SoFly hoodie on my last couple of uh, steelhead trips, and it's been a game changer. Whether hot or cold, wet or dry, I've been uh, feeling perfect in pretty much all conditions. I just I t- haven't taken this thing off. I mean, it's been, it's been pretty awesome. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash SoFly to get started today. That's wetflyswing.com slash S-O-F-L-Y. Well, let's uh, let's jump in. You know, I, I it's funny because I remember uh, way back I also talked to John Gearock, um, had him on, and and I remember I got some flack on that one because we talked a lot about writing and less about the fishing. And I think somebody oh. some people reached out to me and said, "What are you doing? We want to hear more fishing." So l- we got to hear a little bit on the magazine. You know, the the Drake maybe dig into a little bit of of what it's about. Sure. And maybe just start us off because I think most people probably have read it. Um, you know, there's probably some raving fans listening as well in here. But, you know, can you just talk about the, you know, maybe what makes that magazine a little bit different than everything else? Because, I mean, or and maybe it's not. I mean, I know there are some other ones. There's the Flyfish Journal. There's some other really great magazines. But, but why does the Drake kind of seem like a leader out there? Well, the Flyfish Journal is similar in some of its literary approach and that was really the first difference that the drake had i mean four or five of the departments in the magazine have been there since the beginning and one of those is tippets Mm -hmm. which is just typically a one page or two page short essay and that was really the thing that set the drake apart early on the magazines in the late 90s, fly fishing magazines, were really not doing much of anything except for telling you how to fly fish. Yeah. Some way or two, you know, but a lot, almost all of it was, was tips, which obviously does not have a long future when the internet came around. So that was a big part of it. But then also actual reporting. I mean, I, I'd say now that is what differentiates the Drake more than just about anything. I mean, there there's little things I like to think make a difference in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, the, the photo captions. So you put time and effort into every little thing and you make sure that whatever the worst thing is in the magazine is really close to whatever's the best thing in the magazine. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> By that, I mean, I, I always had a, theory like what if someone picks up the magazine and reads the worst story in there and that's their impression yeah like if you if you look at it and think that's not that good then it shouldn't be in there to begin with 
So, but I, I, I think in terms of the essay style um, and, and travel writing, I don't, I hate the word travel writing, but stories about travel and profiles and things like that. Fly Fish Journal does a great job with that. They have an awful lot of the, the essay, but they have a high standard of writers and things like that mm-hmm. as well. And then you need to have some how to, where to sort of more entry ish level out there. And, and I think the, you know, fly fisherman does a great job with that. There used to be a lot more, of course, there's American angler and there's fly rod and rail, all those. When I started the magazine, a lot of those have not lasted. Mm-hmm. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your opinion, but yeah. there was, I think, many of those style, and they, they, it just, it was just too easy to Google that sort of information up and have it in front of you. And now with YouTube, I mean, oh, it's yeah. just, I mean, I learn everything from YouTube. Yeah. I wouldn't know how to replace the string on my weed eater if it wasn't no. for you know. And so that, as far as trying to explain that in a writing thing, I just don't see that being any any comparison. How do you filter through similar to the thing you're saying? Like, and I agree with what you've said before that, you know, the Drake, obviously, you know, you know, you get that it's going to be quality compared to say you just read a random blog and there are some amazing blogs out there. I've interviewed some people that are are great blogs, but there's a lot of, a lot of junk too. I mean, how do you, you know, like compare that like YouTube, right? You go to YouTube. How do you filter through the junk on YouTube to find what you need? Right. Well, very specific search terms when it comes to, yeah, YouTube. I mean, I, I think it, most, especially in our generation, people are able. You can find anything out yeah. on there, um, and and I think that's it's that's been a boon. To, yeah, like fly tying, for example, right? Yeah, fly tying. I know it's a big part of your background, and that's I'm not a big tire, but if I wanted to tie something, I could go in there and watch. I don't know how it would look, but I could learn how to do it. Yeah, right. I mean, it was it was like Jack Dennis VHS tapes, right? That's you're watching back in the day. But I think um, it's a question about how much of the other sort of stuff you put online, like for a publisher, for me, I mean, the problem with the online, maybe not necessarily online magazines, but the, the, the too many times that becomes volume over quality. So you just throw stuff on there because you're trying to get, it's all about the, the clicks and the traffic. And the, right. so you don't have any stories that really have the sort of depth to them. You don't have analysis. You, you don't have the research. You don't have all the things that make a story worth reading. And it, what I want to have in the magazine is if somebody is coming to the end of a three, four, five thousand word story and still wants more. Yeah, that's that's the sign of a well written and maybe more importantly, well edited piece. You know, and I I, I the magazine, though, I, I get a few magazines here at the house, but the New Yorker is by far my favorite. And it's just one of those magazines that I don't even really care about the subject matter sometimes. It's just so well-written and researched and edited that it's just a joy to read. And it's easy to read. Hmm. I mean, as an editor, my number one rule, and any of the contributors who have written for me over the years know this, clarity above all else. 
Yeah. If you lose your reader on the second sentence and they take that off ramp and are gone, they're not coming back. Yep. It has to be clear. It has to make sense to people. And that's a, a, a big, one of my guiding flaws. That doesn't mean simple. It doesn't mean long. It just, it means the editing is everybody's important or more so than is what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah, the, the editing. And again, we come back to that because, well, Zach mentioned that too, you know, because he doesn't come from a, has swing the fly a background in editing and he probably relies or has relied more on his writers, um, you know, maybe. But um, yeah, it's an interesting point because you, you do all this work um, and if you have a good editor, which obviously you, you spent your life in this field. So, so you know it pretty well. I mean, you know, what else? So, so when you have people coming in, I mean, the articles, maybe we just take that for an example. So you have somebody send that sends you an article. It looks pretty good. Can you take us through that process of how it, you know, you get it and then it becomes in the next edition of the magazine or how, is that a pretty lengthy process? It depends on the length of the story. What's your average? Length? I know you have different departments, shorter stuff, but what do you think is the average length? Of I mean, the feature stories are typically 2,500 to 3,500, somewhere in there. So really long for feature stories. They can run longer, but um, if it's less than 2,000, it's probably not a feature story. So like in the summer edition, the you had the um, a couple like the bear attack one, right? Was it more of a, was that kind of considered? Yeah, but that was, it, that was longer, but that was a news story. That was up front. So that's, oh, right. you know, scuttlebutt section, if it's, and I try to, that's where I try to have the most news breaking, okay. you know, sort of, I mean, the, this issue we're doing a lot on the Oregon fires. Oh, you know, so, so, so the scuttlebutt is kind of the break. So if you had something, if you had like a conservation issue that was hot topic, you, you might have that. Sure. Yep. Exactly. And, and, and Dave, that's the hardest section to fill. Why is that? And if you have, if you, if, if reader or if listeners to your show are interested in pitching the Drake, pitch me a news story that is reported and researched and written like a news story. That's it. I mean, and, and I've, I've seen some magazines have just completely stopped doing it because they think, well, that's an online thing. Powder, the Bible for skiers, which I love, made a decision a year or two ago to stop doing any news because that was for the website or something that people aren't interested in. And I could not disagree more. I mean, huh. right now, the, the I think that that's one of the responsibilities of Vertical publications. I mean, you don't know. I had a letter from a, a, a letter from the editor. I don't have a recent copy here for me, but it was a letter from the editor or a letter to the editor in this summer issue. I think it was the first one I ran and it said something like, uh, it's interesting that I can learn more about my local watersheds from your magazine than I can from a local yeah, newspaper. I saw that one. I was in the, that was in and the I, summer. And that was yeah. a great letter. It's, it's, because people, these these newspapers can't cover those sorts of issues all the time, and they certainly can't give it the in-depth no. time. I mean, they have, they have a, a editor there making $35,000 a year, and, they, you know, and, and, and all anybody watches nationally, it's either, like, for or against Trump. That's it. That's 100% of what you're seeing in the news, and everything else gets buried. Yeah. And so... Uh, it's and it's it's hard to find those people now because not as many kids got opportunities in newspapers because there's not as many of them around. Mm. 
But at the same time, if you develop, if you acquire and develop that skill, you are a valuable asset to hmm. any magazine publisher or any, uh, you, you can, if you know how to do an interview and then know what to do with those quotes and how to work them into a story, because that's, I could write something that's, I could write a new story that's three or four years old and people would Love be it. intrigued by it because it hadn't been covered, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't like to, I like it to be as updated as possible, but you know what I'm saying? There's that's just cool. an awful lot of news out there that is not being made. And, and the Tippett's essays, mm-hmm. I get, I get tons of them. That is the easiest to fill. And it's <laughs> great because there, that means you asked me the question earlier, how does that process go? If I can see that it's a Tippett essay, I'll start reading it and I will know usually within the first two or three sentences, whether or not I want to. Oh, well, you can tell whether it's good or bad. Yes. I mean, and that may sound like, I mean, I'll I'll typically read past that just in case maybe they really get rolling a little bit later, or maybe they have a great unique voice that just needs to be edited down. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those essays I get, a lot of them are from people I've never heard from before. People think I don't have an in almost every issue. I I would bet far more often than not, I run an essay that has from someone who's never been published in the magazine before. Yeah, that's cool. Just send them to me. And those are never assigned ever. They just come in, you know? So, so in that respect, that's a much easier hole to fill. So if I was just interested in filling the magazine, I would remove the news section, run twice as many tippets and be done with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It would make my job way easier. Right. But I don't care how, (laughs) I don't care how great of a writer you are. If you have too many of just the sort of Mm -hmm. touchy feely, you know, essay writing, like someone's going to have in their bedside journal, it's not, it's, then it's a poetry magazine or something. Yeah. (laughs) You want to have some hard news in there as well, I think. That is cool. Yeah. I was, things were running through my head as you were talking there just about, you know, the news, but that is such a a critical, especially this day and age, you know, and I think in newspapers, how, right. The newspapers are, we had that stretch where a lot of them went down as well. So you lost, lost a lot of that. Now it's a lot of it's on to online, you know, and you got, you know, but yeah. still, the news in the magazine, I hadn't thought about that, but that makes you know a lot of sense that you can still write a good article and have quotes and do a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah. I'll definitely highlight that for any listeners for sure to check in with you. Um, the other thing, I think you will see some of these small newspapers are trying to figure it out still, like the ones that have survived. And you never, you couldn't have dreamt of having a paywall on a local newspaper before but no. it's slowly working its way down you know the, the the big wall street journal new york times you know they had the coronavirus coverage during the as free for everyone yeah and that brought in a lot of readers that then suddenly started paying oh i want to read other parts of the magazine what is it two dollars a month done you know and but but you when someone like these fires is a perfect example you want to know what's going on in your town you should be able to go to your, if not a local paper, then at least a local website or something. And then you've got either the traffic that you're trying to sell ads off of or these paywalls that are popping up. And it, it, and they're not much, but I, I that dynamic and that business model is 
changing. And you're never going to see that print magazine come back like like it did. But I think you will see some local websites with actual reporters, mm-hmm. especially these fashion. You know, the, those fires were it was a different story every 10 minutes. Yeah. So trying to keep up with that, you had to be online, but it was only those people that were on the ground there in that area that could adequately cover That's it. So right. I think, you know, I mean, it sucks that it takes a natural disaster like that to, huh. to, you know, make people pay attention. But, uh, I, I, I'm hopeful that that reporting as a, as a skill or as a valued commodity will in fact come back. That's right. That's right. Were you, can you give us a little short, uh, is that coming out in the, um, the next edition or, um, on the fire story? It's just fall issue. I'm closing oh, it's right in the fall, now. Yeah. What's yeah. the, um, <clears throat> so is that out right now? No, no. Should be. Should be. Part of the reason it is, is because of the fires. What is the, uh, can you give us a snippet on just that, uh, that news, uh, you know, article that you're putting out there on the fires? The synopsis uh, of sure. I actually have, one of each in this one. The, the news is written by Stephen Hawley, who also wrote the bear piece you were yep. talking about. A very good, very talented reporter. And I was just, I mean, brief aside, I had to fly out to Oregon myself. I have a place in Lincoln City. And Lincoln County was under evacuate. That was September 9th. I had landed in Minneapolis to do a bass and pike story which is also in this issue but luckily there was another writer that was there because i was at the airport 20 minutes my phone was blown up and i turned around and got on a plane and flew back out flew to denver then flew to portland that same night to get to uh echo mountain fire which is in lincoln county and it wasn't on the national news because there was 10 fires farther south and east that were 10 times the size. Yeah. But it still took out 100 homes, structures, northern part of town, both sides of the Salmon River coming into the town of Lincoln City. And I'm on the south end. So my place was luckily spared. It was just some wind damage, but I couldn't even get into it for a couple of days because they had 101 closed. And it was just like, so so the magazine has a story really mainly on the four i mean the clackamas also got hit up around portland yeah but my main emphasis was the uh going north to south that north saniam mckenzie north amqua and rogue and just crazy coincidental that really all four of those not so much the north amqua as far as towns but the other three really had two small communities each that just got torched to the ground. Mm. And they're, they're the sort of things let me just choke up just thinking about it because yeah, the amount of time that we've all spent, I mean, you're an Argonian, you grew up, you know, you, you always, you, you, you stop at that little market, right? You, you, you get your gas at the gas. I mean, it's just these tiny little couple hundred people maybe. And, uh, and these are not the kind of people that some of them have insurance and can rebuild and stuff, but talent in Phoenix, Oregon in a trailer house next to I five. Yeah. They're not rebuilding. No. Nope. You know, it, it was, it's just so sad and it happened so fast. It was hmm. 24 hours and these places went through. So, and, and, and heavily influenced, you know, guides live in these 
communities, the, 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 and you've seen a lot of the fundraising online, the mm-hmm. Sawyer Ors is down there, Loon is down there, Flywaters down there in, in along Southern Oregon, but the Mackenzie east of Eugene is a little less known. The Caddis Fly, Fly Shop's long yeah. time, but has outfitters, but you know, you've been in Oregon forever. You know these things. I mean, but it's it, that's that's essentially the story. And then I also have a, a essay that I'm, I'm running from a guide who who's who's um, been out there. And this is this is a North Umqua piece, which it wasn't really towns, but they're just more people are familiar with that river corridor than any of them, and it's just in really really bad shape. Yeah, and I was I was just gonna know we talked about this I think the last episode, but um, Frank Moore, you know, who also is an amazing person, I think lost his house, and there's a GoFundMe, um, I think a couple sites set up to help, you know, them out. Which, yeah, you know, a lot of it. I had a couple friends that were evacuated, but nothing really hit home until I really heard Frank Moore because I drove down to Frank's house and interviewed him, and you know, did. I, I sat in that house and on the on the North Umqua, and I he. You know, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it, you know, because it was such a powerful, his story and, and, and to think about where they're at. But, um, so yeah, it, it is, it's a, uh, well, and there's also an underlying hinge and, you know, again, you could talk about, um, you know, climate change, right? I mean, that, that freak windstorm, sure. there's probably, you know what I mean? The hot weather, we're turning more like California. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a climate change backdrop on that too. Um, yeah, this isn't the first time for some of these communities and there's, there's been, Decades of logging that people have different opinions about the mismanagement and the, the where these homes were able to build. I mean, yes, it's it's endless that topic, but that's why I asked someone like Steve to do it because he's really that's good cool. at that. If somebody wanted to pick up the Drake um, and they, uh, you know, where is the best place to, to just go if they wanted to subscribe or grab a, a copy of that that next one coming? <laughs> Well, I always suggest first them going to their local fly shop or the closest one to them because mm-hmm. I I love sending them into shops to get the magazine because like all fly fishermen, most of them spend more money then when they get <laughs> the magazine. Um, but beyond that, they're still at all the Barnes and Nobles, a lot of bookstores and and. Grocery stores, I didn't used to have them in there, but there's a couple different distribution companies I work with that, that put them out there in a wide variety. I'm surprised sometimes when I, I just I get emails from people. I found it at Albertsons or whatever. <laughs> you know, I'm, That's awesome. I'm not exactly sure where some of those places sure. are. But, but, but still, it's the, the fly shops are crucial to, the, to like my distribution, and I love sending people in there to do it. Um, I did want to tell you, you know, I, I – I was in I was in your dad's shop back. Oh, Roy. Really? Yeah, I, I mean it was uh, there really wasn't huh. much else in East Portland. I mean that's um, pretty cool. This was maybe early like two thousands or whatever. But uh, you remember uh, Larry Schornberg or Schornberg? oh yeah Schornborn? Yeah, you know, Larry's. Uh, so I worked at Larry's Sporting Goods. Oh, cool. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> like, like early early in college. Um, or one of the, one of the summers I worked in college, but it's just huh. kind of funny to see that. So, so you remember, you, you remember, yeah, the old, uh, uh, Stewart's, well, we had a couple of different days, but back, I think yeah, that would have been well, I don't remember. I was, this was on Halsey. Wasn't yeah. That it was on Halsey. Yeah. 
yeah, okay. Whenever it was on holiday, it was the one I was, the one I was in. Yeah. If I was ever in Portland or visiting a friend and going east, you know, either you go to the flash shop in Welch's or wait till you get yeah. over to, you know, <laughs> yeah. over to Mop. Or head, head over to Bonkins or. No, it's cool. Uh, I, it's been kind of fun on this because I started out, you know, like we mentioned, Trey Combs. Um, you know, I wanted to do this podcast on my own, so I kind of, you know, kind of kept it as a little secret. I just didn't really mention because a lot of people out here, you know, had heard of my dad. He's he's an older guy now, so a lot of new people don't know. Sure. But um, you know, I kind of want to do a thing, so I built it. Years. What's that? The shop was around for 20, 30 years, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it was around in uh, I think I want to say when I was a when I was born. So right around the mid seventies, it was uh, yeah. it was started. Okay. I think. Well, he started out of his garage, you know, back before I was even born. He was uh, he was a teacher. He was a school teacher right. for for like half his life, life, and then he was like fly fishing was his dream, and he basically started in this garage and slowly at one point just you know said well, let's do it, and he dove into it in the mid seventies and had. Yeah, pretty good run there. And I think the, you know, t- actually it was 2008 and my brother kind of helped later on, but, you know, that kind of took that, that crash of the market helped to take, right. them, take them right. out. But we, it was a small, it was a really small shop. And this would have been just before that when I was, in, it was probably like 05 or 06 or somewhere in there. Um, but yeah, I don't remember your, is your shop and. I mean, well, there, there's two, yeah, there's. Off the board and Tiger was the only other real fly shop I remember being. Super prominent. At that, exactly. You know. Yeah. No. Super and, early and there's there's some good ones now, but uh, sure. Yeah. Well, hey, Tom, I, I've got uh, a whole list of questions that I didn't even uh, didn't even look at here. So we've kind of just been. Uh, I'm sorry, I rambled on too much. No, this has been awesome. Hey, I do want to check out a couple of things, a couple of quick ones. I guess we can call this the rapid sure. fire round before we get out of here. Um, That's fine. Yeah. So you had a recent story. I think it was it was John Prine in a recent. Uh, um, yes. Was that, I can't remember, that was a couple, like, last year, or? Uh, no, it was this last, this last issue, actually. It was oh. in, it was in the, the, the summer, you know, post-COVID issue. We did not do a spring issue. because. Oh, of, that's right. Because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So God, that's what, just the summer. So I was just, so that was in there. So John Price, so obviously, uh, you know, I guess people can read that if they want to hear that. But I'm curious on your, uh, you know, as far as music is, uh, do you have a favorite uh, kind of musician or type of music you like? Yes, it's. I really, really love that John Prime style. But I was, for the most part, a little more hippie-ish. I was, I was a pretty big jam band by like yeah, widespread panic, fish. Yeah, the and the Dead. Uh, I only saw maybe a half a dozen times, and and I thought that they were great, and the show was a great experience. And Eugene, my yeah, you know, teenage years or yeah. whatever, but. I went to a lot of that sort of blues traveler, panic, red rocks, Hmm. sort of big head Todd, you know, fish sort of. Oh, yeah. Throughout most of the 90s, that was my scene. And I really like live music, so I went a lot to them. But now it's it's, uh, a little bit more on on the countryside. And funny, John Prine was ingrained in all of us who were rafting guides at Grand Teton National Park north of Jackson because our river boss was a John Prine fan and all we had was a tape deck <laughs> in our big truck that would haul these these I mean I we ran these 30 foot rafts they were bridge pontoons and and wow. and there was only one truck they were 33 feet long 
These are the ones with the big, uh, the big paddle on the back, right? Yeah, they're sweet boats. So that's how we learned to, that's how I learned to raft is running those sweet boats. Really teaches you how to read water, right? So it's a sweet boat. So so it's on a tangent here, but the sweet, it's basically, isn't there a paddle on the front and the back of the boat, right? And it's this humongous, gigantic boat. Yeah, it it looks just like a rudder. And there's, yeah, there's one in the back and one in the front. There's only two or three places in the country. The Grand Canyon run them, but some guys on the middle fork, salmon will run their, their gear boats. I remember that. From a sweet boat. And you run the run the you know, by yourself, and yeah, you were really a stud if you could run that boat the whole ten miles of upper river without whoever was in front giving you a hand with the front sweep. Oh wow! But that was super. It was super hard to do, but it was possible if you could run the whole thing. It like I said, you had it's not like a regular raft. You have to be a couple turns ahead of yourself. Oh yeah, it's crazy. It was, but anyway, tangent off, there was yeah. a big boat, a big truck that hauled it, and there was only one tape in there, and it was John Prine. So that was my introduction to We just listened to it over and over and over. Uh, so early introduction to John Prine. <laughs> gotcha. Cool. All right, let's keep this rapid fire going. I want to, I want to get a couple of these because we had some uh, in our Facebook group. Um, uh, Mark Yusick uh, had a question for you, and he, oh. wanted, he wanted to know, um, what's the most common reason you have for turning away stories? Not well written. That's it. And, that, and like you said, well, that's... But, but but there's a very specific side of that. Uh, not well edited. It's, it's too many... Oh. Using too many words. Like mm-hmm. if it, the one most common advice I tell people, just eliminate every unnecessary word. It's the most basic advice writers mm-hmm. get if they've read about it. But it's still not done often enough. Just when you think it's ready to go, go through and edit it one more time and take out another 10, 20, sometimes 300 words. Yep. <laughs> um, but that is by far the biggest reason. I mean, it can be it can be poorly written as well, but then I, I, it, I won't even get to the editing stage, right? Mm-hmm. But if it, it or turning something away, it's if I if I look at it and it's just too much work to to re-edit and most of the time that is is because there's it's just overly overly it's too written. wordy yeah too five thousand words and it should be two thousand yeah like that that's right awesome <laughs> awesome uh, so here's here's one this might be uh, maybe easy maybe hard um, but finish this sentence uh, fly fishing needs more diversity there you go perfect. I love that. Period. I, I got a TU banquet or something that doesn't look like America to me. No, no, that, that <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, that's it. We've all did <laughs> to it, but but that was that, that's actually an easy one. That is an easy one. That's right. Okay, perfect. Um, and uh, and we you know sports. I think we mentioned this on email. Uh, we're both into that. We actually have some similarities. I think hoops was one of your big sports. What was your? I was curious. Were you a uh, like point guard or what? What, what position? Oh, I was a whole of a basketball player too. So I'm five eight, and so, but I, I, yeah, I played point guard. My, uh, what would have been a marginally successful high school sports career anyway was cut short because I broke my femur in a dirt biking incident hmm. when I was in the summer after eighth grade. So I started high school on crutches and started, <laughs> not that I probably would have been a NBA point guard anyway, but that kind of sent me back some as a participant, but as a fan, I'm, I'm 
huge Blazers fan, um, even bigger Oregon State fan, and I'm very excited that the Pac-12 is going to start playing ball on the November 7th. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're late to the party versus other conferences in the country, but yeah. um, uh, college football is my number one. No kidding. Sure. <laughs> college football. What's a good um, – how do you keep, is there a good, are there any magazines on college football out there that are good? Yeah. Usually that's the, you know, it's the, it's ESPN. the one off, you know, Pac-12. Oh, gotcha. You know, or whatever. I mean, still SI has great reporting on it. Yeah. And, uh, that's probably still the best in terms of the, in terms of the actual reporting and, and writing. Yeah. Um, you get, you get profiles of a lot of players and some of the, you know, uh, general interest men's magazines and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I just, I'm a big fan of the college game. Okay, cool. And, and on, uh, we talked about a few of the departments, any other departments just quickly, you want to touch on, you know, the kind of the essence of the Drake, anything else that's, uh, I mean, is there one that's kind of, you, you see as you hear a lot of feedback from uh, readers? Mm. Yeah. A lot of times, as far as feedback goes, it's typically a, a news piece, but oftentimes it will be a, a profile that we run that somebody had an opinion about or, or pass. And it's, it's uh, a lot of feedback, both good and bad, but you know, we, we don't do a lot of kiss and tell sort of things, but mm -hmm. you got to balance that with having everything be exotic and like unattainable and, but it's it's I'd say if if I was to add up all the letters from the editor I've gotten mm. over the years, I'd say the most would maybe be on references to British Columbia and mm -hmm. the stories and trips I've done up there and into Alaska and a lot of times steelheaders. But I I think that just has a lot to do with the fact that fly fishers all over the country. When they read a story like that, it reminded them of when they did it after college for a summer or they went up there and had some trip in British Columbia or Alaska. And it still is just the most majestic place to go. So I, I think that tugs at the heartstrings of more readers than just about anything else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, occasionally we delve into politics and we certainly hear about that as well. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it, if, if it's travel wise, it's usually steel other salmon stories and the, you know, yeah, Alaska BC. That's right. Is it? Do you do you feel like you're more of a uh, west uh, kind of more stories west side, you know, western U.S. or is it kind of a good mix of the whole country, whole, you know, all of North America? I try to be the latter, and I've gotten better at it. I think the first couple of years, some of it was just meter right like yeah. i didn't know if someone wrote a steelhead story i knew yeah. i could tell right away whether they were probably legit or not but a striper story or something That's i didn't know true. who was you know but i have now kind of established a lot of those people or at least know who i can call to say hey what's the story with oh right this person, whatever um but uh hmm. but yeah i try really hard to make it but and i address it in the individual stories if somebody's writing a story and they just mention you know, they'll, they'll give some local reference to a, a river in eastern Washington. I'm like, dude, I, my subscriber from Georgia is not going to have any idea what the yak is, you know, or whatever. No. I mean, just 
it, it's about trying to, some of that comes in the it happens to take a picture, a bigger view. And it's okay to use, especially with steelheading and spade casting, which I know is a lot of your specialty. Mm-hmm. There's just so much to go. And it's okay to have some of that because people, even if they don't get it, mm-hmm. they want to be, be in the crowd. They want to figure it out. They want to, yeah. And so maybe they'll go then learn it. But it's it's when you're talking about areas in certain parts of the country, um, I just really want to be authentic. I definitely send more of those pieces back to pe- up I'll edit those much more lightly than oh, yeah. I would in terms of terminology I may not even know it but it's probably something that they use on the cape all the time you know yeah. what I mean yeah. so that's yep. kind of how I push that gotcha gotcha yeah that seems like that would be challenging and until you get to a point where like it sounds like you have you you know the whole everybody in the in fly fishing so it's you can fact check you could pretty easily well people are shy about letting me know oh yeah called that you 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 know you called that the up that's actually south michigan 31 or whatever the road (laughs) where do they call that out where is this um, i know the i'll I'll get five letters from someone if you if you if you name a town and say it's in the up and it's not oh wow michigan the people from michigan are not shy about letting you know you you know, it's it's all in good fun, but they definitely let you know about it. That's which... cool. So you get so you actually get letters. I you know obviously letters. There's also and we we won't have enough time to dig way into this, but the forum, right? You have a pretty uh, or you've had a pretty active forum, right? Where people kind of are in there. Can you just describe maybe in a you know a short minute or so uh, what what that forum is all like? And if if somebody was to jump uh, into it right now, what would they what would they see? Uh, answer your question is no. I cannot describe what that is like in one minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that, that is probably a whole nother podcast discussion. No kidding. It, it's evolved, but it's, it's got yeah. its own life, its own. And you just let it go, right? You don't really, you don't really uh, monitor it too much. You just kind of let people just go, go whatever, whatever goes. Yeah. There's, there, there's their own, their own sheriffs in there and they know what the rules are. And, have always been pretty good about keeping them. There's not a lot. I mean, there's only a couple, you know? <laughs> yeah. But is there a little bit of uh, uh, politics in there? Yeah. There's a whole set. There's a whole thread for politics and that's just the way we did it. A lot of people don't want to hear about it. Okay. So if you're going to have this discussion, go here where you guys can knock yourself out. Yeah. And that's, that's been, it's, I mean, some of the numbers on that, on that board, yeah. If I ever wanted to sell ads for that board, there would be a lot of takers. Yeah, <laughs> just, <laughs> just because of the tra- just because of the tra- I've never commercialized it. I've never done. That's awesome. You know, it, it, it's just uh, there's you know a lot of people have drifted off and gone to social media and whatnot. Yeah, but yeah. there's there's still a core of people there that um, yeah, that's a whole other discussion. It's a unique part of the website. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody done a piece? Um, I mean, we've had almost four years of, of Trump uh, now in there. Ha- have Have you had any pieces that any connection to to Trump? Any of your uh, issues? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot. I mean, we 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 uh, Monty Burke wrote a semi profile of Trump Jr. Oh right, I've met and is a is a angler and uh-huh. and we've communicated a few hmm. times. Um, and he he certainly fishes with three or four guides that I know around the country. Uh-huh. And it was not a flattering profile at uh-huh. all. No. Um, 
but he gets it in some ways, you know, I mean, um, uh, I think it's, you know, he and his dad, it really comes down to this divisiveness thing. And that's, in my opinion, that's really one of their biggest drawbacks, but I really don't know if you just sat down and talked to one of them as an individual. Yeah. If there would really be like that. Right. I mean, there's, there's, you could probably compare it to the last topic of the message boards. There's guys on there that come off trying to sound like badasses and it's just their online message board personality. <laughs> I, I think a lot of times politicians have to take on this personality because it, it works. Yeah. I mean, I'm a lot more fascinated by Trump jr. In a lot of ways, just cause yeah. I think he's the one that's kind of embraced the political side of it, of the, that family more so than, you know, the daughter, son-in-law and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, looking forward i'm not sure what that's yeah going to mean yeah you know it'll be interesting to see if out of all this it comes out of you know you think about the the kennedy dynasty man it would be it'd be funny to see if right. uh, you know right. there's actually more more trumps come out of uh into politics as we move yeah. forward there, yeah there's good well i was about to say well we'll know more in a month maybe we won't you know maybe it'll take longer than that but that's true i mean anyone who reads the drake knows the the conservation issues that we take on and things like that and that do not sit well with the right wing of the republican party no (laughs) Uh, and and that's the nature of the the sport and the the uh the importance of yeah environment to me personally and to people who fly fish exactly yeah i think somebody said it recently on on here that it's just um you know it's, it's not really a i mean i guess it's political but it's really not when you're talking about you know, saving the salmon or whatever other species are out there. You know, that's just the bottom line of, you know, protecting. but right now Dave, people will make anything political. Yeah, that's true. I'm just, I'm honestly just, that's true. I'm sick of both sides. Yeah. Period. No, I just know. The, just, just the constant debate with the families and friends that just, you cannot, I'm just so tired of all yeah. of that. And sadly it, it takes something like these, these fires to really see, you see some of these small communities come together Right, but no one gets at that in that yeah. moment. Yeah, like, the voting for or whatever, and uh, and and you, you know, hang on to some of that sort yeah. of you, you know, know common ground, if you will. But yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. There's a <laughs> we could we could do well, well t- Tom. I'm gonna let you get out of here. I just before I do, I just want to check in the next uh, six months or so. Anything you know new coming for you or, or the Drake we can expect? Uh, a more robust website is oh nice not not website, website itself no, i was gonna say it looks good the website looks good i haven't put a lot of uh content on there a lot of that's kind of by design there's there's a there's um there's someone i'm gonna be working with that, that's handling some of that oh, and nice. we're making a plan for it and so that's that's exciting just part of part of the being a modern yeah media outlet and that's right. uh, and and keeping with the Drake voice and reporting and things like that, that just things that just make more sense to come out right now rather than, you know, two yeah. months down the road, this issues coming out. So that's huge. That's kind of where that's going. That's huge. And yeah. I'm excited about that. That's great. Okay. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on that. And if they want to find you, just the uh, drakemag.com. Yep. Yep. Info at or Tom at drakemag.com. 
Perfect. All right, Tom, well, I'll let you get out here. Good uh, chat, Dave. Yeah, this has been this has been a lot of fun. I love that, uh, you know, again, at the start, we're like, well, where are we going to go with this one? And we, we didn't right. even barely talk fishing. And again, I, for, for some reason, for me, those are sometimes are the best ones. You know, I mean, I think some people want more of the, you know, the, the tips and tricks. We could have talked steelhead all, all day, right? But, yeah. I mean, you and I both live on the Oregon coast. Yeah. I mean, we could talk. That could get dangerously deep inside. Maybe that's a that's a whole nother discussion. But yeah, I'm with you. I listen to fishing podcasts, and I kind of like when they veer off of some of the other yeah aspects. I haven't touched on. Plus, I know your history with the podcast guests, and I don't hold a candle to those guys in terms of you know my my expertise or knowledge right. of space and that sort of thing is is uh I, I love listening to the guests you have though they're fantastic i hear you no and, and i always think of i can't remember who i heard this from but i always think like okay did i get something new right is there anything today we was kind of a general chat but is there anything today we talked about that that nobody knew that people hadn't heard before or is this all you know is it kind no, of i think there's a few things i definitely never mentioned larry's sporting goods oh there the you go before. we got larry's out of you <laughs> That that that's for sure. And also, I think that I, I don't think I've ever told this how much of my thoughts when I was a lifty. Oh really yeah, was where was where the Drake really came out of. It wasn't me being a, a, a fishing. It was sitting there during the winter in a yeah in a, a lift shack. And I wanted to dig into that. I want, but it, we won't. But I, I when you said that, I was like, I just pictured, you know, like a line, like a person holding a stop sign on the street, right? Like those people right. are out there for eight hours a day and you're just like, man, they have a lot of time right. to think kind of, right? Well, there's, I, I bet there's a lot of people who fly fish who were lift ops at some point in their history in mountain towns, like almost all patrolmen or ski. A lot of people have, that's where you start out. Oh, right. On the mountain. Anybody that's been on a remote part of a big mountain on a slow day. Yeah. No, on the top shack, not the <laughs> bottom where you have to pay attention, but the top shack, uh, a lot of downtime. Damn. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of thinking. That's some serious. <laughs> that's some serious uh, meditation stuff. So, all right, Tom, I'll I'll let you get out of here. I'll uh, talk to you talk to you soon. All right, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. On. All right, thanks. All right. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com/slash/one-six-two. Uh, it would be amazing if you could uh, support the the podcast for as little as uh, $5. You can join the local community uh, where we support our members and uh, local companies. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash members to get started today. Thanks in advance if you uh, if you have time to support or are already a supporter. Uh, I want to thank you again for taking the time today to listen to the episode. I am really looking forward to uh, catching up with you maybe online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.